this yes. is hell. Okie doke. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. We began last week by speaking with scholar and writer M.E. O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care. The title of Emmy's book is the kind of thing that's ripe for taking out of context, for judging a book by nothing but its cover, and not only by reactionary members of the right, but also so-called centrists and self-identifying liberals. The family is sacrosanct in the United States, and not only above criticism, but also any kind of any analysis whatsoever. However, as M.E. explained, abolition does not always and only mean destruction. It also can mean a transformation. In the case of family abolition, that can mean an expansion of the care and love that are limited exclusively to our relatives within our current political economy. The traditional family, a, a private structure for human relations that is grounded in concepts of property and control, obfuscates any sense of community while limiting imaginations that might otherwise be able to have a more collective response of us all being in this together instead of at each other's throats at all times. That view of the family is also built upon a framework of privilege that proper family must reflect one of wealth, a standard that is then imposed on, upon those who are not as well off, a standard that is essentially not achievable. Our conversation with M.E. got a lot of positive response from you, our listeners. Her book also got high praise from a past guest, writer, theorist, and recovering academic Sophie Lewis. Sophie is quoted saying of Emmy's book, Family Abolition, an accessibly written distillation of two centuries worth of reproductive class struggle, a, a revived vision of revolutionary beloved community, for an age of climate catastrophe and permanent pandemics. Spread this book around and start communizing care. On today's show, Sophie returns to discuss the family, but with a different focus. We'll be speaking with Sophie in a few to talk about her Baffler article, The Good Enough Momfluencer, Disavowing Maternal Fantasies is Easier Said Than Done. Her article's review of the book by Sarah Peterson, Momfluenced, Inside the Manding picture-perfect world of mommy influencer culture. Sarah, Sarah Peterson's website says she writes about feminism, domesticity, and motherhood. Peterson also writes a newsletter uh, about the myth of the ideal mother called In Pursuit of Clean Countertops, which is a frightening, frightening title. This is Sophie's third appearance on This Is Hell. She was on the show most recently, most recently in October of 2020, last year to discuss her book Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation. You may also remember Sophie being on the show back in July 2019 to talk about her then just published book Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. Not only were both those interviews selected by you, our listeners, as among the very best of the year and replayed during our end of year best of special broadcasts, but you can find both those conversations by going to thisishell.com and searching on Lewis, L-E-W-I-S and as always they are free. Sophie is currently hard at work on a book for uh, Haymarket on enemy feminisms. As a member of the faculty of the Boston Institute for Social Research, Sophie re teaches courses on feminist, trans, and queer politics and philosophy, including family abolitionism. In fact, one of the people who took that course at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research 
listener Neil C. He uh, was actually in that course and joined us during our party this past weekend, our This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. So thanks again, Neil of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research for joining us. With the Out of the Words Writing Collective, Sophie contributed to the 2020 collection Hope Against Hope, Writings on Ecological Crisis. She's a visiting scholar at the Alice Paul Center for Research on Gender, Sexuality, and Women at the University of Pennsylvania and a member of the teaching faculty of the Philadelphia branch of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Sophie is nevertheless a freelance writer dependent on public speaking and Patreon. Support her, her amazing work at Patreon dot com slash repro utopia that's repro utopia sophie's lectures are archived at lasofiel.org and you can follow follow sophie on twitter at repro utopia i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live streaming and podcast host chuck mertz producing is cat jarvin and cat how was your weekend my weekend was pretty good. I got to go to the listener appreciation party, meet some, met some listeners. That was really fun. It was uh, my first time going, and I felt like a celebrity. <laughs> Did you? A very small celebrity, very minor. That's very, so a lot of people were coming up to you and saying that they'd heard you on the radio? <laughs> no, that's why I say very minor. <laughs> I met maybe one or two listeners, uh, but they, they were really great people, and it was, it was awesome to chat with them. Yeah, thanks to everyone who came up for this year's This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party. Thanks to Lisa Barcy for curating this year's This Is Art. If you missed this year's This Is Art, there will be gallery hours over the next several weekends. They are currently scheduled for Saturdays from 3 to 8 and Sundays from noon to 5 every weekend other than Labor Day weekend. The weekend after Labor Day, there will be a closing party, and when we get a confirmation of the date and time, we will be make certain to share that with you here on the show. You can also check out This Is Art during this week's This Is How Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think, which happens every Wednesday, also at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. Drop by and I'll bring you up here to Second Story Studios and you can see the art show. Although some of the art has been sold, there's still plenty up and it's my understanding as art is sold by artists, they will replace the work so the, work, so the walls stay full. Office hours will be taking a break for a couple of weeks following Wednesday's meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. Again, this is how office hours. And it will be returning on Wednesday, August 16th. Thanks to Pete Valavanis, the proprietor of Carrie's Lounge, for everything he did for the party and does every year. Thanks to my non-wife and her sister for their help with the party, the art show, and the raffle. Speaking of which, this year we had more prizes, probably the best selection of prizes we've ever featured during the raffle. So thanks to everyone who did donate prizes to our raffle this year. Finally, thanks to everyone who joined us. Every year, people come from all over to celebrate. This time we had listeners in town from Milwaukee, Dayton, Ohio, Lexington, Massachusetts, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Brooklyn, Jackson, Mississippi, Fayetteville, Arkansas. There even were people who flew in from India for the, uh, on the day before the party. Not that they flew here into town for the party, but whatever. There were people who flew in from India, and the next day they were at our party. There was a huge rainstorm that started just as the doors opened. We had uh, intermittent showers, really heavy rainfall all day. And still, the crowd just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So thanks, everybody, for celebrating 27 years of This Is Hell, giving us the opportunity to show our appreciation for you listening. One last thing, uh, right before the party... As I was walking out the door of my home to come over here and set stuff up, the refrigerator in my home completely died. 
So not only were me and my non-wife and her sister all hosting the party over here, we're also dealing with the knowledge that by the time we got back to our place, all of our food will have gone bad. Cat, more important than another successful party as well as our office hour schedule and our fridge dying as we were leaving the house for this week, this year's party. What is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is what do you need a vacation from? We will share your question from hell answers as posted at Patreon coming up after our talk with Sophie Lewis on the frightening world of momfluencers. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell and Cat has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Ozzy Osbourne's hangover cure. <laughs> Pretty excited about this one. <laughs> um, as far as the UK's Far Out magazine website reported last week, Ozzy stands as a genetic anomaly and as a fascinating subject of scientific discovery. In 2010, scientists conducted a comprehensive DNA mapping of his entire genetic makeup, unearthing remarkable findings that pushed the boundaries of their understanding. One of the most captivating revelations within his DNA was the presence of a previously unseen mutation. The mutation likely influences the production levels of a certain protein. If, through this mutation, Ozzy's body possesses an inherent ability to detoxify alcohol at an accelerated rate compared to the average individual, it may shed light on why his liver has endured. Prior to learning about his mutation, however, Ozzy did have a hangover cure. This is so disturbing, this hangover cure. The guy's got the genetic makeup to never be hungover, and then he has a hangover cure that's really disturbing. Far Out explains. Summarizing Ozzy's approach to hangovers in his advice column in the Times of London. Really? Dr. Ozzy wrote that, over the years, I developed a fail-safe cure Basically, I'd miss four table, mix four tablespoons of brandy with four tablespoons of port, throw in some milk, add a few egg yolks, and some nutmeg. Oh, tasty. The second I woke, I'd mix it up and down. The way it works is very clever. It gets you instantly blasted again so you don't feel a thing. The only drawback is that unless you keep drinking, the hangover will eventually, eventually catches up with you about, oh, the hangover that eventually catches up with you is about a thousand times worse than it would have otherwise been. That makes this week's hangover cure Ozzy's favorite. Oh, that's disgusting. Delicious. <laughs> Delicious and disgusting. <laughs> so, uh, coming up, online momfluencers are not what they appear to be. Kat will have some of your answers to our most recent question from hell, which was the one we just read. I don't know why it says most recent in here. We will tell you what happened on last week's bonus Patreon podcast of This Is Hell, which is available at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll tell you what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. No past inside the present today with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, our in-house historian who shares with you the uh, historical context you need to have a better understanding of the present. Uh, he's going to be returning in a couple of weeks we'll tell you a little bit more about that on the show live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people where even children are viewed as property this is hell and if children are property what's wrong with mommy bloggers using them as props why not turn them into marketable commodities as evidence of the blogger attaining happiness through an individualized idea of de uh, domestic bliss here to tell us 
why that may not be the best foundation for a loving human relationship, no matter how many mommy bloggers insist it is returning to This Is Hell. Writer, theorist, and recovering academic Sophie Lewis posted the Baffler article, The Good Enough Momfluencer Disavowing Maternal Fantasies is Easier Said Than Done, which is a book review of momfluence inside the maddening picture-perfect world of mommy influencer culture by Sarah Peterson. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sophie. Good morning, Chuck. Hi from Philadelphia. <laughs> I definitely wanted to have a return uh, conversation with you after our conversation with M.E. O'Brien mm. last week. Uh, so you liked her book? Oh, Emmy is the best. Yes, we, we've we've been thinking and and writing and learning and teaching and bouncing off of each other for years now, and I'm so glad you had her on. Absolutely, what a great book! And I feel like my my little uh, you know chat book pamphlet abolish the family uh sort of w- was the the book that came out in front sort of softening people up before her slightly heavier sort of uh history you know uh w- w- was was the sort of you know i was clearing the way for, for her to come in with the with the heavy artillery <laughs> yeah I, I totally agree with that assessment and i would really strongly suggest that people read your book prior to reading me's book you don't have to but it's a great way for you to be introduced to the concepts that then me expounds upon so yeah really great uh, really fantastic work so yeah you write uh you start your article by writing i will hand it to sarah peterson uh the uh, author of man momfluencer this uh, she is a master Momfluencer, her momfluencing is woven almost imperceptibly across an entire book about the cruel optimism of momfluencerdom, where she chronicles her personal journey of partial disidentification from the motherhood-themed lifestyle industry and social media subculture in question. So for those who are not aware, who do not know about this industry, how would you describe it? What is a momfluencer? How would you describe a momfluencer? Right. Well, momfluencers are the sort of mommy bloggers of the moment. They're they're an evolved form of what in the 90s and 2000s were, were sort of mommy bloggers they're more they're influencers who uh, are very you know talented at weaving advertorial affiliate links um, and other forms of sort of multi-level marketing into their social media content and output right so you know they're uh, typically I mean this particular book focuses exclusively on momfluencers on Instagram this one particular platform and um i believe there are you know momfluencers on other platforms as well but um you know to be transparent i was you know asked to review this book um there was a forum on it at the feminist uh, academic journal signs um and i participated in that and then i sort of i just built up a little bit more of an essay having done that already um, to contribute to the baffler because I do you know I make my <laughs> I make my living like this writing essays right but and it is a little bit of, I mean I don't want you know audiences to have too much whiplash moving from the theme of abolition of the family to you know uh, to, to momfluencing I, I I decided to write about momfluencing because as you know I'm really interested in the private nuclear household and what it would mean to deprivatize care as you were talking to Emmy about last week and um you know and 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 when i say deprivatize care i mean you know abolish the family although as you say this is a controversial albeit very old and practiced 
Marxist phrase, but that means I'm also interested then in all the things that make the private nuclear household and the sort of capitalist patriarchal institution of motherhood seem bearable, right? And that's why I was interested in this book by Sarah Peterson, which is critical of what she calls mummy influencer culture. Um, but in the end, as you as you saw, because you know you, you you just read the first few sentences of my essay, I feel like she's just doing even higher level momfluencing, the kind of high level momfluencing where you uh, you almost imperceptibly sort of reconcile people to the idea that if the momfluencing was, you know, feminist enough, uh, and if it made enough space for sort of black and fat and disabled and working class types of motherhood experience although although uh, this you know this person herself is very much not those things she's extremely sort of uh, in her own sort of description and uh, her self positioning she is you know thin white chic well off new hampshire uh, uh, you know, married to a rich man, clearly, <laughs> uh, you know, hiring lots of sort of what I would call almost surrogate um, laborers for her household, you know, au pairs, nannies, and so on, who are very much not part of her own social media feed. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the thing that she's selling is a sort of momfluencerdom that is uh, that full of recognition that there are... Um, you know, pernicious capitalist aspects uh, to momfluencing. And if you, if you had enough recognition of all those things, then somehow it might be okay, you know. So, so, so in the end, she's foreclosing any kind of really radical political project that might, um, you know, for instance, liberate children from being commodified in this way or uh, transform even more radically the, the sort of privatized structure of, of the home. Gosh, I, let me just check that I'm still with you because the, your internet when when we were doing the check was a little bit. No, you, yeah, you're, no, you're still with me. And one of the things that Fantastic. you one of the things that you mentioned that I just, I mean there was like I have like seven thousand follow up questions to that. But uh, one of the things that you mentioned was this kind of erasure of the domestic workers within her household, and that reminded me of I was watching a show. It was like a weekly, you know, half hour show. I think it's called America's Heartland. It's about like mm. agriculture. It's just about farming. That's all it's about. Whenever mm -hmm. they show anybody who is farming, it's always the white family who mm -hmm. runs the farm. In the background, sometimes you'll see blurred out, you know, migrant workers. What do you think happens when they do erase the domestic? What happens when a, a to a, a blo mommy blogger or a momfluencer's uh, perspective? When they do erase the domestic worker, what's the point of erasing that domestic worker from her, quote unquote, traditional nuclear family? Well, I suppose from her perspective, she would probably say that she's attempting to get at something about maternal experience and the, the sensation of overwork and underappreciatedness um, that, you know, maternal figures uh, can relate to across America, sort of across class, you know, boundaries. And I, I suppose the, the erasure that she's performing of the, uh, the people, you know, doing 
the motherhood with her in her house is almost unconscious, I, I, I imagine. It, it doesn't fit into the feed. And I wonder if it even, if the possibility of including the nannies, the cleaners, the babysitters even occurs to momfluencers, to be honest. Because at this point, you know, we're, we're looking at centuries actually of, um, uh, of advertising, this is, you know, I'm not exaggerating, you know, that in a sense, uh, the selling motherhood is the origin of uh, consumer culture, right? <laughs> uh, sort of 19th century, uh, um, you know, desires for the good life uh, expressed through sort of targeted momvertising or, you know, proto-momvertising was, was, was one of the main ways that sort of commodity culture uh, got moving on a mass scale. There's a really interesting book also um, about Jean Wade Rindlaub uh, called The Angel in the Marketplace, um, Jean Wade Rindlaub and the Selling of America by Ellen Wayland Smith, which gets into some of this history. And this particular person was a sort of titan of advertising and the the, the brains behind Betty Crocker. Um, and she was really perfecting this already uh, existent sort of uh, um, method of uh, lubricating capitalist society by speaking to mothers and through mothers um, by, yeah, by, by, by tapping into people's desires for the good life. And in some senses as well, their recognition that um, there is a gap between what we're looking at, the fantasy, the Betty Crocker fantasy, perhaps, or the, 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 the more, the, the intersectional sort of frustrated, uh, almost left liberalish sort of momfluencer sensibility, the good enough momfluencer, as it were, which is a, a title that the baffler picked uh, because, you know, writers typically don't write their own um, titles, but they, but I think it's great. Uh, the good enough momfluencer is a reference to the idea of the good enough mother, which is a, you know, a left psychoanalytic concept from, from David Winnicott. Um, and, and this is the sort of, the idea that uh, we are all, in a sense, not perfect. We're all sort of failing somewhat. We're all frustrated. Uh, Sarah Peterson talks a lot about being sort of, in her own phrase, you know, mad at capitalism. She even says that, you know, but at the same time, um, the, you know, her, her ability to, to look beyond what she calls cruel optimism in, in momfluencerdom is is very limited because uh, she, she, she's, she's folding all sort of critical appreciation of, of, of what might be bad for us in momfluencing into a, a sophisticated <laughs> momfluencing endeavor where she's sort of saying, you know, hey, like uh, maybe until, you know, up until we sort of, you know, change the world completely, uh, let, let, let's make sure nobody takes away our online shopping, <laughs> nobody takes away our sort of the pleasures and the uh, uh, the consolations, uh, in a sense, of um, indulging in, in in sort of fantasies of uh, of 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 um, you know whether it's completely idealized or somewhat less idealized but still sort of commodified um maternal um uh perfection right uh, even if the perfection is imperfect that there, there's room for that in the influencer universe at this point chuck do you see what i mean it's sort of yeah. like you you can have a 
a, a blogger whose blog is called In Praise of Clean Countertops. And what she's selling is almost the recognition that it's hard to, to, to get your countertops consistently clean. And that recognition that it is hard is, is the... Uh, the affective cell, in a sense, uh, but the you know the idea that you might completely reject uh, any or all of this uh, is is elusive. It kind of remains out of reach, you know, <laughs> um, and and that's not even getting into the whole question of the sort of um, some of the you know unpaid uh, participants in your performance. You know, typically uh, the children, and there are you know. Uh, legislations around the world where it's no longer um, okay, no longer um, legal to uh, use the, you know, your children without their consent uh, on your uh, influencer, uh, you know, feed. Um, and so there are sort of digital privacy laws being, um, you know, hashed out around the world to protect uh, people from, you know, their image and their identities being kind of uh yeah roped in by 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 people like momfluencers in multi-level marketing schemes to generate um you know money although not that much money typically right erin <laughs> duffy in 2017 was writing in a book called not getting paid to do what you love um that it's only nine percent of influencers across the board who make anywhere near enough to live on um, and it, it's it's hard to get hard figures and statistics uh, for 2023 on uh, you know on on how much influencers are making or momfluencers within that. Um, but it's generally very uh, the consensus is is completely clear. It's it's a it's a minority. It's a tiny minority that makes enough to live on. So you know the um, the typical momfluencer is supported by uh, a spouse, um, and then there are some who make untold millions. Um, and it's kind of interesting that Peterson finds it necessary to sort of stave off any uh, any disapprobation, any sort of disapproval we might have about that kind of uh, really, really, uh, you know, successful, ultra wealthy top tier of, of momfluencers because uh, she thinks it's, you know, misogynist to criticize uh, um, an industry run overwhelmingly uh, as she says, you know, by women. Um, and do you think? Do you, do you think that's misogynist? Do you think that any criticism of the momfluencing in industry? Uh, I, let me uh, phrase that differently. What do you think of the perspective that any influence or any uh, criticism of the momfluencing industry is misogynist? How? Where do you think that that? Uh, do you think that it is misogynist? And what does that say about the person who is viewing it as misogynist? Well, you know, I, as you said, I was I'm writing a book currently on enemy feminisms, and and you know these people don't qualify. I'm you know my book is about um, you know suffragettes who joined the fascist party, literally, you know, and uh, the 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 suffragists and feminists in the Ku Klux Klan. And you, I hope you'll have me back on your show when I finally finish writing it. You know, and and this is sort of this is common or garden liberal feminism and girl boss feminism that we're looking at right here today you know i and um i would say no uh it is not inherently misogynist to you know 
in her in her phrase, denigrate a multi-billion dollar industry dominated by women, um, that I, I say, <laughs> you know, in fact, uh, that for my money, there's probably more inherent misogyny in the multi-billion dollar industry in question, which is about, you know, lubricating the reproductive division of labor, naturalizing, in a sense, this reproductive division of labor, even as it mildly critiques it. Um, and this is an industry where uh, wifely financial dependency is aestheticized. I mean, there are many different kinds of momfluencers. Some of them have feminist branding. Some of them are out and uh, explicit uh, white nationalists. Um, and you can learn more about that in, you know, Seward Darby's book, um, Sisters in Hate, uh, which which Sarah Peterson off, uh, also engages uh, in great detail, and we can look back to that aspect, right? You have trad wives, you know, you you have all types of momfluencers. It's not so much about the content of their specific politics, so much as the fact that, as I already said, the nannies, the cleaners, the babysitters are excised from the feed and and it is sort of the maternal body put in the spotlight, perhaps with the children, um, you know, uh, surrounding her. Um, but she's subjected to all kinds of beauty disciplines uh, ranging from the overtly white patriarchal and fat phobic to slightly more sort of insidious things. But, you know, uh, so, so I would say, no, it's, <laughs> you know, industries dominated by women are, uh, may uh, be misogynist and of themselves. Uh, you know, misogyny isn't something I think only men traffic in. Um, however, uh, there is no denying that uh, mommy bloggers, uh, momfluencers, um, and, you know, women <laughs> who, you know, blog or write or, you know, produced certain kinds of literature and genres associated with these categories like chick or mom are uh, for sure um, sometimes uh, subjected to a type of criticism and a type of derision that is misogynist, that is also, you could say, matrophobic, right? Phobic of, of the maternal. Um, yeah. And, you know, there is a sort of excessive level of contempt that sometimes gets expressed about influencers who are momfluencers. And I think that's because of anxieties that are provoked when uh, women, and that includes sex workers, for example, but also in this case, um, <clears throat> you know, mothers who uh, unmask, you know, the gendered sphere of non-work as uh, something that can be rendered economic. And it kind of makes us anxious because we, we're all formed inside an imaginary where, you know, uh, certain types of labor are supposed to not be visible as labor. Um, and, you know, when, when sex workers kind of expose that sex uh, is or and can be work, and when momfluencers expose I'm sorry, my accent makes the word momfluencer a real a real challenge. <laughs> yeah. it, when momfluencers uh, you know, expose the fact that um care 
um, and 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 love within the private nuclear household can be sort of non-natural, can be economic, can be work. Uh, there's something in a lot of us, I think, that gets pretty freaked out uh, in a way that is disproportionate. Um, you know, so the type of the type of freak out that people have about sex workers, there's something ethically wrong about that. You know, some things should not be for sale is the idea, right? Which, you know, is not in and of itself uh, wrong. <laughs> it's the singling out, right? It's the singling out of certain industries um, as somehow, you know, uh, sick or it's the workers that are to blame for the fact that this work exists, right? We, we are where we are. It's capitalism's fault. Uh, being mad at sex workers or mad at mumfluencers is 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 a reactionary impulse. You know, we, we to to single out specific industries for specific types of uh, moral censure is not in to, to, in my in my book uh, uh, a revolutionary sort of uh, left practice. Right? We don't we don't go about uh, you know prohibiting uh, certain influences uh, certain industries. We work with the workers you know, to struggle in and against and beyond work. Uh, anyway, that's a little bit of a... <laughs> no, I know what you mean, because that's kind of like missing the forest for the trees. Exactly, exactly. It's not yeah. the it's not the momfluencer uh, that's engaging in the system that's the problem. It's the problem is obviously the system. And you mentioned that in her 2017 book, Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Erin Duffy estimates that only, as you were pointing out earlier, 9% of influencers earn enough money to live on. Of these lucky few, however, momfluence is oddly protective. And here's a quote from uh, the book by Peterson. Why are people so appalled at how much momfluencers make? It's odd that someone who describes herself as mad about capitalism makes such a point of not reviling the ruling class. She goes on to say, I'm loath to imagine a world in which my mat um, maternal labor is unvalued, unpaid, and disrespected, and there's no reprieve to be found in buying something to soothe the ache of longing. So... How much is the issue, uh, Sophie? Just mothers not being paid. How far would being paid go to freeing motherhood from the expectations and impositions of capitalism? So would things things be fine with mothering no. <laughs> and the traditional family if mothers just got a check in the mail every week? No, no. So this is a very complex topic. Uh, going back to Marxist debates about housework in the 70s and the the platform uh, Wages for Housework that was an international campaign in the 70s, including in New York, Black women for Wages for Housework, uh, lesbians for Wages for Housework. You know, there was a, a an, an important militant sort of uh, autonomous Marxist campaign uh, in that moment. But what was often missed about that was that the, the end goal, despite what the demand seemed to say, was not, in fact, uh, a situation where everything stays the same, but somehow you have forced the state, the capitalist state, to uh, cough up <laughs> and pay mothers without anything else changing. That was what some people seemed to imagine was actually being demanded by these um, by these feminists who included Silvia Federici, Selma James, Leopoldina Fortunati, Maria Rosa Dalla Costa, and lots of others. But the point was for them to expose through that slogan how impossible that would be and to expose the fact that the awaged sphere, uh, sorry, excuse me, an unwaged sphere of non-work is necessary to the functioning of uh, the capitalist mode of social reproduction. So they were trying to show that 
you would have to explode capitalism in order to uh, wage uh, housewives and housework. Um, they didn't think it was actually possible. They were trying to put pressure on the naturalization of of, of the housewife uh, as a as a as a, a laborer of love. That was why their sort of infamous uh, manifesto started. You know, they call it love. Uh, you know, we say it, it is unwaged work. Um, that's not to say that they don't believe in love. They're actually sort of pitting themselves against capitalist housewifehood because they want to find out what real love might feel like. And this is also my project in Abolish the Family. It's the, the, the sort of taking up of this revolutionary perspective that says, you know, we are currently economically coerced into the care that we give one another in the sphere of the household. Um, it's not to say that none of it is real or that it's all uh, somehow subsumed into capitalist logic. But what surely any struggle worthy of, you know, of a name like communism or communization would, would need to dream of a, a, a situation where we encounter one another in, 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 a, in a way that's much more free from economic coercion. So that's why I say, you know, uh, if you love the people in your family currently, you want abolition of the family for their sake, for your sake, for the sake of your relationship with them. A red love, Alexandra Kollontai called it, becomes possible in circumstances where uh, you are not economically coerced into the private nuclear household and into the 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 the, fam the capitalist family. Um, so, sorry, that was a bit of a <laughs> detour, but no, it, it, it's not to say that you could simply, you know, pay moms uh, right now. Also, ha you know, if we were in a position to force the state to do that, uh, surely there's lots of other things we would we would do at the same time if we had that kind of power <laughs> and nothing would remain the same. Um, but, you know, people have seriously advocated for uni universal basic incomes, right? Why, why um, naturalize the institution of motherhood by handing out checks to uh, people we currently call mothers why why not uh distribute you know that labor across society why not hell give it to children as well <laughs> you know universal basic income let's make it truly universal if we're going to be uh you know doing doing that uh then 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 let's make sure that motherhood itself becomes um you know, remade, undone. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's important to recognize that certain strategic campaigns for, um, you know, uh, better welfare provisions for children, for mothers, um, might be part of uh, a, situ a, a sort of power building or coalitional project um, for leverage in the present. You know, I'm not saying uh, I, I, you know, I have I have all of those uh answers about what what sorts of policy platforms and you know non-reformist reforms or you know transitional demands might might be desirable along the way but I'm I'm open to I'm open to all of it you know let's let's put pressure on the state to you know to 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 extend uh you know parental leave uh multiply it <laughs> by 10 uh 
you know, pay people uh, for sure. You know, that there's all kinds of things um, that, that need to happen right now, given how privatized and miserable and austere uh, parenting is in America. Um, but at the end of the day, no, I don't think you can just simply say, you know, wages for mom work as an end destination. Right. And, and the kind of idea that the uh, traditional family is more a structure for control and consumption than it is one for love and care. We are speaking with writer and theor- theorist and recovering academic Sophie Lewis, who posted the Baffler article, The Good Enough Momfluencer, Disavowing Maternal Fa- Fantasies is Easier Said Than Done. It's the review of a book by Sarah Peterson called Momfluence. Sophie is currently hard at work on a book for Haymarket on enemy feminisms, and you can follow her on Twitter at ReproUtopia. You can also show support for her work at Patreon.com slash ReproUtopia. So uh, you have... I really uh, enjoyed your book a lot, and toward or your book, you're writing a lot, and in towards the end, you start writing about this kind of, as you were touching on earlier, this kind of right wing feminism that kind mm. of exists, and these right wing momfluencers. So you quote uh, Caitlin Tiffany in her report titled "The Women Making Conspiracy Theories Beautiful," where she writes a wild claim that the furniture retail site Wayfair was serving as a middleman for the child trafficking ring that captivates QAnon devotees, took off among Instagram influencers whose accounts trade in the domestic and in the joys of consumer culture. Mm. <laughs> so, where is there? Where's that link? Is there a link between advocating for consumer culture and spreading online conspiracy theories? In this case, about child trafficking. How do those two things connect together? Yes. Well, one interesting perspective um, that has been made clear to me by the people who you know are specialists and experts on influencer. Uh, economies and multi-level marketing economies, um, uh, people like Sophie Bishop and Kelly Pendergrast and Catherine Jezer Morton, they have been explaining to me in their writing how during the pandemic, um, momfluencers were poised because of their um, sophisticated sort of pre-existing knowledge as to how you turn uh, a domestic uh, sphere under lockdown, for example, into um you know, a, a vision of the good life that is also uh, clickable <laughs> and uh, lucrative, you know, almost, uh, you know, t- anyway, uh, that th- they were poised as, as uh, you know, people almost ready-made to thrive economically under conditions of sudden lockdown. And the algorithms that sort of uh, at people have been uh, exposing as kind of rightward spiraling, right, um, are very much the the the, the weavings of momfluencers. Uh, there's nothing sort of inherently left about certain types of feminism, um, and you know some mon- momfluencers gained gigantic followings po- um, posting white nationalist eugenic nativist, conspiracist, uh, anti-vax content, even as, or maybe even in a way related to reacting to the anti-police rebellions that were rocking the streets uh, in 2020, right? And Peterson sort of looks at some of these um, QAnon moms. Um, She looks at one influencer 
um, who has, you know, 200,000 followers, last I checked, Rose Henges, you know, she reflects how this is a good mom, quote, you know, a good mom, a pretty mom, a white mom who presents a calm, sane impression of simply asking questions. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that it's not a super coherent uh, or courageous enough critique of what is going on here that we get from Momfluenced. In fact, I find it a little alarming, the sort of way that Momfluenced, uh, the book, sort of oscillates chaotically between uh, humanizing these women on the far right. Um, so there's Rose Henges. There's also a different one called Ayla Stewart, um, who is uh, an out and out white nationalist. Um, there's a kind of, you know, there's obviously a disavowal of these people, um, but there's a, a, a humanization of them that's going on as well. Peterson writes that she deeply understands and empathizes with this longing to be part of something and to believe in something worth being part of, unquote. Um, and she explains that the seduction uh, of these uh, accounts is particularly powerful, the seductiveness, uh, in a situation where America's mothers are quote-unquote, gaslit, right? Um, gaslit through uh, American capitalism's way of valorizing motherhood and uh, trashing it at the same time, sort of unfunding it, abjecting it materially, but sort of ideologically uh, romanticizing it. And that situation of gaslighting makes uh, moms, she says, vulnerable, you know, to, to seduction by this... Um, well, she doesn't call it fascism. I, I call it fasc fascism. Um, and Seward Darby's book, Sisters in Hate, um, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism, uh, is, is a good resource uh, for, a, for a more sort of coherent and courageous sort of dissection of what is going on here. Um, you know, if you're surprised and you're new to this kind of area, then perhaps it seems enough to simply write, you know, uh, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, as Peterson does. She, <laughs> in the margin of sort of, uh, you know, lessons um, in history that Seward Darby provides. So, you know, Nazis handed out medals to white German mothers according to how many children they had. And, you know, <laughs> she writes vomit, right, in the margins just to let us know that she's she's shocked. I, <laughs> you know, sure, you know, I, I, I dispute that this is a particularly valuable perspective. It's been some time now uh, since, you know, the trad wife movement got going. Um, in her defense, Peterson understands that, you know, she says, nostalgia for simpler times is tied to whiteness, whether it's explicit or not. Um, but there is a sort of wildly insufficient response here to maternalist fascism. Um, just kind of surprise, you know, shock, you know, wow, the Nazis gave out medals to, to moms. And, and that is basically sitting side by side with her uh, lament that mothers are not appreciated in America. So it kind of does unintentionally raise the question for the reader, you know, what do you want? Do you want a medal ceremony? Do you, you know, do you understand how lines need to be drawn here? Um, and some active kind of political anti-fascism needs to happen, right? <laughs> um, anyway, that was that was sort of my perspective about this, the treatment of this, this aspect of it. Um, you know, the, the, the parts that are about Ayla Stewart, who is a sort of ex-hippie 
uh, who posts as wife with a purpose and organizes the quote unquote white baby challenge. Um, you know, it just really, really disturbing when I got to that part of your writing. And you mentioned how uh, Sarah Peterson, too, thinks of herself as a bit of an ex-hippie, just like Ayla Stewart does, who once, quote, harbored grand fantasies of being a serene earth goddess mother. Or do we hear, in, or so we hear in another chapter. Thus, when uh, Ayla Stewart blogs about feminists undervaluing homemakers, Peterson knows what she means. In the logic of liberal feminism, quote, because many mothers and care workers don't earn wages for their work, our work is denigrated, there are no 40 under 40 lists celebrating our accomplishments, and then you point out again, considering she freaked out about Nazi mom celebrations a minute ago, would a medal ceremony feel welcome? Peterson also over-exaggerates the uh, relatability of uh, Stewart quite a bit, writing as someone who spent her first years of motherhood solely devoted to childcare and domestic work, I understand Ayla's perspective. Within that framework, what is the logic of liberal feminism that you think Peterson is getting at? Is she just rationalizing fascism? What what's what's the logic of liberal feminism within that framework? So there's there's a foreclosure of any sort of recognition that something structural might be uh, on the table as a, one might one might aspire to a collective mass desire, uh, you know, to, to overhaul uh, the, the private nuclear household and its role within a class society, its role within a, a wage society, uh, that there are certain things that are, you know, implicitly here uh, completely unchangeable. So you can kind of gripe about, you know, Peterson gripes, uh, says, you know, apparently, um, what is it she says? Um, uh, is it childcare? I'm so sorry. Let me just find it one second. She says, uh, apparently universal childcare is, uh, universal preschool is too much to ask, right? Uh, but the question never really arises, is she part of asking? You know, is she part of organizing for universal preschool? Uh, you know, people do that, right? You know, people campaign and organize uh, and and rise up and struggle. <laughs> you know, uh, that it, it, it's like it's like, did you forget to ask? You know, uh, and and because of that, that that sort of naturalization of everything as it currently is, you 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 sort of you get the impression that she's unintentionally getting quite close to recognizing the 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 kinship between liberalism and fascism and the way that liberalism historically has no defenses against fascism whatsoever um and that's that's kind of you know unconsciously uh what what's happening when she she shows how relatable uh someone like Ayla Stewart is to her um because at least uh, Ayla Stewart gets, uh, in a sense, these Nazi medal ceremonies uh, in in remuneration for her for her mothering labor, you know, which is the sort of celebration or, or remuneration that Peterson uh, feels moms like her are denied. Um, 
you know, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, what do you think? Uh, what, what, what's your answer to that question I, you just I, No, I think that your answer is spot on. I think that that relationship between liberalism and fascism because of liberalism's refu- refusal to have a structural critique of the society within, within which we live, uh, that is a huge problem with a, and a huge shortcoming for liberalism. You write that Momfluence joined this uh, field in as much as its uh, memoirist bits describe an overpowering urge to get in the car and just drive or the rage in my bones as Peterson writes sometimes when I slam doors when I shove a shoe onto a squirming kid's foot so at this point I'm growing exceedingly concerned for Sarah Peterson is she recognizing what's wrong what's wrong she actually coming upon a structural analysis of what's wrong with mothering what's wrong with the uh you know traditional family but that there's nothing to do about it like there's a futility that there is no alternative because there's nothing to be done other than doubling down on trying to at least accomplish some sort of domestic bliss is is she recognizing that what's wrong with everything but at the same time trying to change anything is futile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how it feels to me. In a sense, you know, um, the high-level momfluencing um, she's, you know, she's allowing people to tap into, uh, and perhaps, you know, selling her book. After all, just like my book is, you know, is a commodity. Um, you know, she's saying, okay, you're uh, a white feminist, stay-at-home. New Hampshire, mother of three, you've read Lauren Berlant, you know, you understand what cruel optimism is, and you're bemused by your own yearnings to inhabit effortless maternal grace. You're, you're, you're bemused, but you're also frustrated with the shortfalls in your performance of mothering. And you want, and this is another relatable thing that you're sort of projecting, you know, you want confirmation that all moms are failing too. So you uh, you, this is her phrase, you scroll to locate the place where the performance stops in other moms' momfluencing feeds. And you never find that place where the performance stops, except, and this is a sort of strange aspect of her book, you know, on the le- much less lucrative feeds, the, the, the very much obviously not making bank kind of uh, alternative uh social justice-y type feeds of uh, black, trans, fat, disabled content creators who are sort of talking about motherhood in 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 these sort of intersectional uh, leftist ways. And you, you dutifully sort of tip your hat to them. Um, and I write perhaps a little bit too snarkily, you know, <laughs> after all, you may be dewy with the right serums in a home furnished with the right tiles, but you're smart enough to see that, quote, it's all bullshit, unquote, while you are, quote, unhealthily obsessed, unquote, with your baby, you are cynical too, and you find your kids boring. (laughs) You are angry as far as you know at capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, and you, you know, you like to remark bitterly um, that, you know, uh, proper uh, infrastructure and provision for mothers seems to be too much to ask under capitalism. But once again, you know, you have apparently forgotten to actually ask. And so, you know, and I do feel perhaps a little bit, um, there's a small part of me that's a little guilty really for coming for one specific person like this, because I do feel it's not actually uh, Peterson's 
you know, fault, right? There is a marketing niche. Uh, there is a publishing niche that has been created. Um, book publishers uh, have created a market for very specifically white maternal memoirs in which relatively privileged women uh, confess their sort of mixed feelings about motherhood, sort of faux transgressively uh, and apolitically. And so you find these bestsellers in this niche. They're called things like screaming on the inside, you know, and they're about maternal regret. They're about despair. They're even about hatred of children. Uh, but they don't cross any lines either toward desertion of maternal duty on the one hand or toward collective political rebellion on the other, right? And that is uh, that is a structural phenomenon in publishing, right? So I want to make clear it's really not about villainizing a particular person whose book I found frustrating. <laughs> but I would also say that, um, you know, the structural ills that this book glances upon, you know, sort of like bumps up against uh, problems like gendered overwork and housewife anno me and uh, familial chauvinism and, you know, the objectification and dehumanization of children uh, and the whiteness of the maternal in America. These are problems that cry out for mass experiments, you know, in uh, deprivatizing care, denuclearizing houses and households, you know, uh, abolishing the police, you know, socializing food provision, decommodifying education and shelter, you know, turning, as we used to say in the 70s, mothering against motherhood. And so <laughs> I, I try and say, and I mean it very sincerely, you know, I await Peterson's sequel, you know, Momrade Pilled, as opposed to momfluenced, you know, and I await it with open arms. You mentioned one, I just want to touch on one more thing before I ask you the question from how, how does uh, abolishing the prison industrial complex come into play when reconsidering yes. motherhood? Yes. Well, this is great because I've been able to link up with more and more people uh, since writing Full Surrogacy now in 2019 uh, who are interested in abolishing family policing as one part of the project one might call abolishing the family. And abolishing family policing might sound like it's the opposite, in a sense, of abolishing the family because, in a sense, you're trying to fight the state that has its boot on the neck of particular families, you know, racialized families. Uh, you're fighting the border guards and the uh, the child foster care um, system, um, the you know child protective services officers uh, whose work is so demonstrably um, and in a very you know beyond dispute at this point documented way, sort of um, racially biased uh, against. Um, Black and of color uh, kinship structures in in our world, um, and and you, in that sense, you know, it might seem like you're doing the opposite. You're and indeed, you know, sometimes we march uh, and under the banner of keep families together and stop family separation, right? And that might seem like something it's impossible to square with a demand for abolition of the family. But as we learn when we go into the archive of what family abolitionists historically have actually meant, it is only by recognizing that 
all of those forms of violence take place under the aegis of the family, <laughs> paradoxically, right? It is the, uh, the, the, the productive, the properly right reproductive and productive uh, tacitly white family that is being defended when, um, you know, fugitive uh, and, and, and racial and non-heteronuclear kinship structures are targeted by the state in this way. And so Dorothy Roberts and her students, um, Dorothy Roberts being, you know, one of the main figures in the sort of scholarship around reproductive stratification, um, the, the sort of shattered bonds that are uh, produced and created by the um, family policing system in America. Um, uh, you know, that they're increasingly moving towards a recognition that uh, the only effective way uh, to fight that matrix um, of, of anti-blackness um, that, that talks about uh, the family as it destroys family is to have a robust vision uh, of, of a denuclearized um, uh, and, and sort of almost youth-liberated uh, sort of uh, a vision of reproductive justice that includes autonomy and care in equal measure uh, for people who are choosing to be with one another uh, for, for, for reasons, you know, of uh, love and affinity uh, as much as any a sort of notion of uh, biogenetic or proprietarian uh, kinship. Um, so it's, it's necessary to critique uh, the sort of naturalized capitalist version of kinship uh, if you're going to uh, push back uh, the state's dehumanization of certain families. So it becomes a question of families against the family, if you like, in the, in the immediate term. And I'm just about to go on a uh, family vacation, which I found kind of ironic. So my monologue on Patreon today or this week is going to be exactly about what you were just talking about, trying to find family outside of the traditional family or f trying to find the, you know, the kind of love and care that is often far, you know, far too often limited to only the family. When, as you were pointing out, it, there can be a sense of red love where you can expand out of just out, you know, outside of the walls that surround your home. Uh, one, one last question for you, Sophie. We've been speaking with Sophie Lewis, who has a new article out, The Good Enough Momfluencer, which you can find at The Baffler. She is currently hard at work on a book for Haymarket on enemy feminisms. You can follow her on Twitter at ReproUtopia, and you can show support for her work by going to patreon.com slash ReproUtopia. One last question for you, Sophie, and as always, it's the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So momfluencing reinforces this, you know, privileged notion of the traditional family that is almost impossible to uh, achieve if you don't have the resources of a wealthy family. And considering how that household is financed is always kind of off the table, fig trying to figure out where the people get those resources. If it's if the head of the the quote unquote head of the household is the uh, husband in the family, what the momfluencers rarely talk about what 
who knows what kind of exploitative work they do to continue the all the problems that capitalism causes. And at the same time, as you're pointing out, it objectifies and dehumanizes uh, children beyond their role even in a nuclear family. So it continues on that kind of objectification and dehumanizing. Uh, Momfluencing uh, resuscitated capitalism during the early years of the pandemic. Uh, Momfluencers had a lot of influence and power, and so it kind of helped out with the shortcomings of capitalism at the beginning of the pandemic. So are momfluencers about keeping capitalism's control over the family and expanding that control over our kids, or even about the appearance of control when that control is outside of our grasp within capitalism? It, it was, are, is, uh, are uh, momfluencers about that control, that consumerism, that capitalism imposes upon the family and momfluencers were the ones who saved capitalism. Hmm. I think I will answer that with a uh, a, a cautious yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> there's a great quote from Pelly, Ke- excuse me, Kelly Pendergrast, where she talks about how um, momfluencers' role uh, in this revivification of capitalism included sort of uh, reviving the commodity uh, that had lost some of its luster uh, by, you know, becoming delivered to your door in cardboard Amazon boxes sort of more exclusively because of these conditions of lo- lockdown. So she talks about how momfluencers uh, spanked the commodities cheeks a little and turned it back into a product. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, I think generally speaking, motherhood is a very powerful vector for attaching our desires to stuff. Um, and there's a revolutionary archive of mothering against that institution of motherhood. Um, But it is, you know, incumbent on us to to appreciate the extent to which uh, motherhood as an institution um, is anti-liberatory for sure. And by the way, Chuck, I will be in Chicago for the socialism conference that Haymarket puts on in September, first first weekends. I don't know. I, I just wanted to say that in case you guys, you know, ever hold one of your listener appreciation parties while I'm around. Well, I'll, <laughs> I will contact you and, t- and uh, see what your schedule is. That's Labor Day weekend. Uh, the socialism conference is happening here in Chicago because here in the United States, we had to have a Labor Day because you can't have May Day in the United States. So we had to separate it away from everything else. And so that's when our socialism conference is. So, Sophie, thank you so much for being back on the show. I cannot wait till your new book comes out on enemy feminisms, which is also very difficult to say. I think I might say that three times fast before the show from now on. Enemy (laughs) feminism. Exactly. So, Sophie, (laughs) thank you so much. Real pleasure to have you back on the show. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Chuck. Take Take care. care. Bye. Enjoy your holiday. Thank you. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because for a second consecutive week, we've started the show with a guest who dares to question the traditional family structure, seeing it as an obstacle for us all being in this together, whatever the current crisis is at this time. If you actually learned something from Sophie this week and M.E. O'Brien last week on Family Abolition, show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing 27 years of content that you cannot get anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else, and providing that content to you 
for free since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can find right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support our new merch may be up already i know it's going to be going it was supposed to go up this weekend so we do have new merchandise three new pieces of merchandise over at the site of new baseball cap a hooded jersey as well as a nucky for the back of your cell phone kate 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 whatever happened to kate i never she she left years ago cat what is this week's question from hell and how have our listeners responded on Patreon, and I've got really bad marble mouth this morning. (laughs) Um, This week's question from Hell is, what do you need a vacation from? We've got about 12 responses on Patreon. Sweet. So, let's see. In early, a public universal C comrade says, in early, so going big, capitalism. I need a permanent vacation from capitalism. (laughs) All right, then. For us all, please. (laughs) Yes. Tars Animal writes, The Hell We Have Created. Okay. Uh, Jario Martis, or Jario M, says, Work and the work adjacent petty dramas. Okay. Mm-hmm. Addie writes, I need a vacation from the twin demons of capitalism and white supremacy. Fat chance of that happening anytime soon. Oh, why didn't they throw in the fat thing? You don't have to be Lucas like that. <laughs> Um, Jefferson, spelled backwards, responds, The poison ivy. It keeps showing up at the landscaping jobs I'm at for the past week and a half. I'm pretty good at washing up at the end of the day, but when you're, it, you're, when you're in it, you're in it. Okay. <laughs> Vacation from poison ivy. Okay. Jeff Dorchin writes, Vacation or vaccination? I'll take one of each with the works. <laughs> okay. Essential responds, The predations of the constantly chasing tickle me vulker. All right. <laughs> PF responds that they need a vacation from all the forest fire smoke. Working outside in the heat gets pretty hellish when that smoke sets in. You know, I didn't even think about that. Outdoor workers are probably having a horrible summer. Can you imagine being a road worker in Canada or northern Midwest this year? Must have been, uh, must be awful. Yeah. Yeah, I never even thought about that. Terrible. Jeez. Um, Brayden writes consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> Neil C. responds, my hangover. (laughs) Tim C. responds, paying my bills, more like a sabbatical. Just long enough to get caught up and plan my disappearance. I think consciousness is the leader so far. (laughs) I like that one, too. And we have another response from Jeff Jeff Dorchin, who responds, writing the tease for the moment of truth, (laughs) which this week is, Jeff remembers when we tried civilization. Oh, there you go. No rest for the weary. (laughs) Thank you for bringing in the tea so early there, too. Great. Is that it? That's all on Patreon. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's what uh, Jeff is talking about this month, uh, or this week. Earlier this month, while recovering from yet another uh, surgery in my year-and-a-half-long dance with death as I was re- recuperating here on the show, we had some technical difficulties and logistical challenges which kept us from posting the Patreon podcast. So uh, it was the first time we'd missed sharing a a bonus Patreon show since the spring of last year, 2022, when I was out for over two months following a life-saving medical procedure. Due to those difficulties and challenges with Patreon, we weren't able to post audio during the 
4th of July week. So on our most recent Patreon podcast, Thursday, July 20th, we shared what was supposed to be my very special celebration, my very patriotic monologue, and what it means to be an American, and why we should all be very, very proud of the United States. But by looking at popular culture and academic studies on what it means to be an American and to be patriotic, to me it all seems at best contradictory and at worst thoroughly confusing. What Americans are supposed to be and what they're supposed to be proud of does not align with any actions at all. That, that what's meant, uh, what an American is and uh, should make them feel patriotic all of that is a story, a myth, a fairy tale meant to be told to frighten children to help them sleep at night. Those children then grow up and eventually and eventually realize it was nothing but lies built on bro broken promises. So how can I be patriotic when what an American is said to be and what people in the United States claim they are, none of that exists? How can I be patriotic about a complete myth? That makes absolutely no sense. I mean... If this is the home of the brave, why do we arm ourselves with the teeth and slap surveillance uh, devices all over the inside and outside of our homes? So after my monologue, uh, my happy birthday to the United States and the confusion it brings me, we played the very first report Teleser English's Brian Muir gave us live from Brazil, which was originally aired back in 2015. When we posted it at Patreon, we uh, heard from Nas Rafej, who writes saying, Brian Muir is my favorite correspondent. Every hellish interview brings a smile to my face, despite the bleak world we live in. But that's not the only response we received. When we shared last week's Patreon podcast on Twitter, something else happened. We tried to share the show, but Twitter stopped us, blocking the post for this reason. This is the notice that they sent us. This post has been identified by Twitter or our partners as being potentially harmful. Visit our help center to learn more. Now, of course, I'm not an idiot. I did not visit the help center. Nobody does. So I tried to tweet the exact same links, again, to Brian, to Teleser English, to Patreon, to the podcast. But this time I included the reason Twitter blocked our post, again, saying that uh, it was potentially harmful the post that we had originally tried to post. All I did was just post posted the reason that Twitter blocked the last one, and this time it worked. We changed nothing, only adding the reason Twitter gave for blocking us, and their algorithm approved our post. But the only way you can hear uh, me being all unpatriotic in an early report from Brazil with Brian Muir, no matter how hard Twitter tries to cancel us, is by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. When you become a Patreon patron, you not only get access to a bonus show every week, but you also get access to a special code word that gets you a discount on all of our This Is Hell merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. On top of that, by becoming a Patreon patron of This Is Hell, you get early access to every week's Question From Hell, and Patreon patrons can ask me a question from hell, a question from hell I've never heard or read before. Will asks it exclusively during our Patreon podcast, again at patreon.com slash thisishell. But the only way you can hear all of that is by becoming a Patreon patron. Thanks to our newest Patreon patrons, Sean K., Rebecca S., Katie S., Jack B., Paul T and Taste My Taser. And thanks to Aaron E for upgrading their subscription. 
The past inside the present with historian Sebastian Vupper returns on Monday, August 7th, as he is currently deep in the woods somewhere either in Colorado or Michigan and will be for a couple weeks. Wherever he is, he is out of contact. As a reminder, for the first two weeks of August, we will be featuring interviews with another historian, Gerald Horn, who has been joining us here on the show since 2018. Er Earlier this month, he made his sixth straight annual appearance. Each of the five interviews with Gerald have been chosen by you as one of your favorites of the year, and we replayed them during our annual end-of-the-year best-of series, which we play during our winter holiday break every year. So tune in during the first two weeks of August and hear each and every interview we've ever done with Gerald Horn on a variety of topics. You will hear us talk about, in chronological order, the rise of slavery, white supremacy, and capitalism, the resistance against global white supremacy and international apartheid, 16th century slavery and capital across the transatlantic that predates the focus of the 1619 project by 100 years, racism, racketeering, and the political economy of boxing, that's right, boxing, Texas slavery, Jim Crow, and the roots of U.S. fascism. Yes, everything's bigger in Texas, including their terrorism for fascism. And what we discussed during our most recent conversation with Gerald, racism and radicalism in Washington, D.C. during the 20th century, and how it revealed to the world just how racist the United States was, is, and always has been. In other words, it's the history that Moms for Liberty and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis want to make a crime. Kat, who are this week's upcoming guests here on This Is Hell? Returning to This Is Hell, Jake Johnson recently had an op-ed in the New York Times titled, The U.S. Still Can Do What's Right for Haiti. Jake is Senior Researcher Associate, Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., and the author of the upcoming book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. That book is coming out in January, and Jake will be on our show in January to discuss that book. Who else is coming up this week? Um, and our final guest before our two-week marathon of interviews with historian Gerald Horn, dating back to 2018, will be Ben Makich, who posted the Intercept investigation, Russian Militia Has Links to American Neo-Nazi and Anti-Trans Figures. The leader of the anti-Putin Russian Volunteer Corps is publicly connected to U.S. neo-Nazi leaders Robert Rundo and Christopher Polhas. Ben's reporting has taken him to the Middle East, Pakistan, Russia, and Ukraine, where he has covered the war since 2016. He also hosted the 2022 podcast American Terror about far-right extremism in the U.S. Thanks to Kat Jarvanen for producing. It was great seeing you at the party. Had a really wonderful time with everybody at the party. Thank you all for showing up to this hell anniversary and listener appreciation party this past weekend. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>